Is that what has been the longing and covenant of your heart with your God, to be a man or a woman separated and given up unto the Holy Spirit? I pray you listen to the voice of heaven. Separate me, said the Holy Spirit. Yes, separated unto the Holy Spirit. May God grant that the word may enter into the very depths of our being to search us, and if we discover that we have not come out from the world entirely, if God discloses to us that self-life, self-will, self-exaltation are there, let us humble ourselves before him. Man, woman, brother, sister, you are a worker, separated unto the Holy Spirit. Is that true? Has that been your longing desire? Has that been your surrender? Has that been what you have expected through faith in the power of our risen and almighty Lord Jesus? If not, here is the call of faith, and here is the key of blessing, separated unto the Holy Spirit. God, write the word in our hearts. I said the Holy Spirit spoke to that church as a church capable of doing that work. The Holy Spirit trusted them. God grant that our churches, our missionary societies, and our workers' unions, that all our directors and councils and committees may be men and women who are fit for the work of separating workers unto the Holy Spirit. We can ask God for that too. Then comes my fifth thought, and it is this. This holy partnership with the Holy Spirit in this work becomes a matter of consciousness and of action. These men, what did they do? They set apart Paul and Barnabas, and then it is written of the two that they, being sent forth by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia. Oh, what fellowship! The Holy Spirit in heaven, doing part of the work, men on earth doing the other part. After the ordination of the men on earth, it is written in God's inspired word that they were sent forth by the Holy Spirit. And see how this partnership calls to new prayer and fasting. They had for a certain time been ministering to the Lord and fasting perhaps days. The Holy Spirit speaks and they have to do the work and to enter into partnership. And at once they come together for more prayer and fasting. That is the spirit in which they obey the command of their Lord. And that teaches us that it is not only in the beginning of our Christian work, but all along that we need to have our strength in prayer. If there is one thought with regard to the Church of Christ, which at times comes to me with overwhelming sorrow, if there is one thought in regard to my own life of which I am ashamed, if there is one thought of which I feel that the Church of Christ has not accepted and not grasped, 
If there is one thought which makes me pray to God, oh, teach us by your grace new things. It is the wonderful power that prayer is meant to have in the kingdom. We have so little availed ourselves of it. We have all read the expression of Christian and Bunyan's great work when he found he had the key in his breast that should unlock the dungeon. We have the key that can unlock the dungeon of atheism and of heathendom. But, oh, we are far more occupied with our work than we are with prayer. We believed more in speaking to men than we believe in speaking to God. Learn from these men that the work we which the Holy Spirit commands must call us to new fasting and prayer, to new separation from the spirit and the pleasures of the world, to new consecration to God and to His fellowship. Those men gave themselves up to fasting and prayer, and if in all our ordinary Christian work there were more prayer, there would be more blessing in our own inner life. If we felt and proved and testified to the world that our only strength lay in keeping in contact with Christ, every minute allowing to work in us, if that every minute were our spirit, would not, by the grace of God, our lives be holier? Would they not be more abundantly fruitful? I hardly know a more solemn warning in God's word than that which we find in the third chapter of Galatians where Paul asked, Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Galatians 3, 3. Do you understand what that means? A terrible danger in Christian work. Just as in a Christian life that is begun with much prayer, begun in the Holy Spirit, is that it may be gradually shunted off onto the lines of the flesh. In the time of our first perplexity and helplessness, we prayed much to God. God answered and God blessed and our organization became perfected. Our band of workers became larger, but gradually the organization and the work and the rush have so taken possession of us that the power of the Spirit in which we began when we were a small company has almost been lost. Oh, I pray you, note it well. It was with new prayer and fasting, with more prayer and fasting, that this company of disciples carried out the command of the Holy Spirit. My soul, wait thou only upon God. Psalm 62:5. That is our highest and most important work. The Holy Spirit comes in answer to believing prayer. When the exalted Jesus had ascended to the throne, the footstool of the throne was the place where his waiting disciples cried to him for ten days. And that is the law of the kingdom, the king on the throne, the servants on the footstool. May God find us there unceasingly. Then comes the last thought. What a wonderful blessing comes when the Holy Spirit is allowed to lead and to direct the work and when it is carried on in obedience to Him.
You know the story of the mission on which Barnabas and Saul were sent out. You know what power there was with them. The Holy Spirit sent them, and they went on from place to place with large blessings. The Holy Spirit was their leader further on. You recollect how it was by the Spirit that Paul was hindered from going again into Asia and was led away over to Europe? Oh, the blessing that rested on that little company of men and on their ministry unto the Lord. Let us learn to believe that God has a blessing for us. The Holy Spirit, into whose hands God has put the work, has been called the executive of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Spirit has not only power, but He has the spirit of love. He is brooding over this dark world and every sphere of work in it, and He is willing to bless. And why is there not more blessing? There can be only one answer. We have not honored the Holy Spirit as we should have done. Is there one who can say that that is not true? Is not every thoughtful heart ready to cry, God, forgive me that I have not honored the Holy Spirit as I should have done, that I have grieved Him, that I have allowed self, the flesh, and my own will to work where the Holy Spirit should have been honored? May God forgive me that I have allowed self, the flesh, and the will to actually have the place that God wanted the Holy Spirit to have. Oh, the sin is greater than we know. No wonder that there is so much feebleness and failure in the church of Christ. Peter's Repentance And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Luke twenty-two sixty-one and 62. That was the turning point in the life of Peter. Christ had said to him, Thou canst not follow me now. John 13:36. Peter was not in a fit state to follow Christ because he had not been brought to an end of himself. He did not know himself and he therefore could not follow Christ. But when he went out and wept bitterly, then came the great change. Christ previously said to him, When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Luke twenty-two thirty-two. Here is the point where Peter was converted from self to Christ. I thank God for the story of Peter. I do not know a man in the Bible who gives us greater comfort. When we look at his character, so full of failures, and at what Christ made him by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is hope for every one of us. But remember, before Christ could fill Peter with the Holy Spirit and make a new man of him, he had to go out and weep bitterly. He had to be humbled. If we want to understand this, I think there are four points that we must look at. 
first, let us look at Peter, the devoted disciple of Jesus. Next, at Peter as he lived the life of self. Then, at Peter in his repentance. And last, at what Christ made of Peter by the Holy Spirit. Peter, the devoted disciple of Christ. Christ called Peter to forsake his nets and follow him. Peter did it at once, and afterward he could rightly say to the Lord, We have forsaken all and followed thee. Matthew 19.27 Peter was a man of absolute surrender. He gave up all to follow Jesus. Peter was also a man of ready obedience. You remember Christ said to him, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets. Peter the fisherman knew there were no fish there, for they had been fishing all night and had caught nothing. But he said, At thy word I will let down the net. Luke 5, 4 and 5. He submitted to the word of Jesus. Further, he was a man of great faith. When he saw Christ walking on the sea, he said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee. Matthew fourteen twenty-eight. At the voice of Christ, he stepped out of the boat and walked on the water. And Peter was a man of spiritual insight. When Christ asked, the disciples, whom say ye that I am? Peter was able to answer, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. Matthew sixteen fifteen through 17 And Christ spoke of him as the rock man and of his having the keys of the kingdom. Peter was a splendid man, a devoted disciple of Jesus, and if he were living now, everyone would say that he was an advanced Christian. And yet, how much there was wanting in Peter. Peter living the life of self. You recollect that just after Christ had said to him, Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Christ began to speak about his sufferings, and Peter dared to say, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Then Christ had to say, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Matthew sixteen twenty-two and 23. There was Peter in his self-will, trusting his own wisdom, and actually forbidding Christ to go and die. Where did that come from? Peter trusted in himself and his own thoughts about divine things. We see later on, more than once, that the disciples question who should be the greatest among them. Peter was one of them, and he thought he had a right to the very first place. He sought his own honor above the others. The life of self was strong in Peter. He had left his boats and his nets but not his old self. 
when Christ had spoken to him about his sufferings and said, Get thee behind me, Satan, he followed it up by saying, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16:24. No man can follow him unless he does that. Self must be utterly denied. What does that mean? When Peter denied Christ, we read that he said three times, I know him not. Luke 22:57. In other words, he said, I have nothing to do with him. He and I are not friends. I deny having any connection with him. Christ told Peter that he must deny self. Self must be ignored and its every claim rejected. That is the root of true discipleship. But Peter did not understand it and could not obey it. And what happened? When the last night came, Christ said to him, Before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Mark 14:30. But with self-confidence, Peter said, Though all shall be offended, yet will not I. I am ready to go with thee to prison and to death. Mark 14:29, Luke 22:33. Peter meant it honestly, and he really intended to do it. But Peter did not know himself. He did not believe he was as bad as Jesus said he was. We perhaps think of individual sins that come between us and God, but what are we to do with that self-life which is all unclean? Our very nature. What are we to do with that flesh that is entirely under the power of sin? Deliverance from that is what we need. Peter knew it not, and therefore it was in self-confidence that he went forth and denied his Lord. Notice how Christ uses that word deny twice. He said to Peter the first time, deny himself, Matthew 16:24. He said to Peter the second time, thou shalt deny me, Matthew 26:34. It is either of the two. There is no other choice for us. We must either deny self or deny Christ. There are two great powers fighting each other, the self-nature in the power of sin and Christ in the power of God. Either of these must rule within us. It was self that made the devil. He was an angel of God, but he wanted to exalt self. He became a devil in hell. Self was the cause of the fall of man. Eve wanted something for herself, and so our first parents fell into all the wretchedness of sin. We, their children, have inherited an awful nature of sin. Peter's Repentance Peter denied his Lord three times, and then the Lord looked upon him. That look of Jesus broke Peter's heart. The terrible sin that he had committed, the terrible failure that had come, and the depth into which he had fallen suddenly opened up before him. Then Peter went out and wept bitterly.
Oh, who can tell what that repentance must have been during the following hours of that night and the next day when he saw Christ crucified and buried, and the next day, the Sabbath. Oh, what hopeless despair and shame he must have felt. My Lord is gone, my hope is gone, and I denied my Lord. After that life of love, after that blessed fellowship of three years, I denied my Lord. God, have mercy upon me. I do not think we can imagine the depth of humiliation Peter sank into then, but that was the turning point and the change. On the first day of the week, Christ was seen by Peter, and in the evening he met him with the others. Later on, at the Sea of Galilee, he asked him, Lovest thou me? John 21:17. Peter was made sad by the thought that the Lord reminded him of having denied him three times, and said in sorrow, But in uprightness, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. John 21:17. Peter transformed. Now, Peter was prepared for deliverance from self, and that is my last thought. You know Christ took him with the others to the footstool of the throne and told them to wait there. Then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, and Peter was a changed man. I do not want you to think only of the change in Peter, in that boldness, that power, that insight into the Scriptures, and that blessing with which he preached that day. Thank God for that. But there was something deeper and better which happened to Peter. His whole nature was changed. The work that Christ began in Peter when he looked upon him was perfected when he was filled with the Holy Spirit. If you want to see that, read the first epistle of Peter. You know wherein Peter's failings lay. When he said to Christ, in effect, Thou never canst suffer, it cannot be. It showed he did not have a conception of what it was to pass through death into life. Christ said, Deny thyself, and in spite of that, he denied his Lord. When Christ warned him, Thou shalt deny me, Matthew twenty six thirty four, and he insisted that he never would, Peter showed how little he understood what there was in himself. But when I read his epistle and hear him say, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. 1 Peter 4.14 Then I say that it is not the old Peter, but that it is the very Spirit of Christ breathing and speaking within him. I read again how he says, Hereunto were ye called to suffer, because Christ also suffered. 1 Peter 2.21 I understand what a change had come over Peter. Instead of denying Christ, he found joy and pleasure in having self-denied, crucified, and given up to the death. And therefore we read in Acts that when he was called before the council, 
he could boldly say, We ought to obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29, and that he could return with the other disciples and rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name. You remember his self-exaltation? But now he has found out that the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit is in the sight of God of great price. 1 Peter 3, 4 Again he tells us to be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. 1 Peter 5, 5 Dear friend, I implore you, look at Peter, utterly changed, the self-pleasing, the self-trusting, the self-seeking Peter, full of sin, continually getting into trouble, foolish and impetuous, now filled with the Spirit and the life of Jesus. Christ had done it for him by the Holy Spirit. And now, what is the point in my having thus very briefly pointed to the story of Peter? That story must be the history of every believer who is really to be made a blessing by God. That story is a prophecy of what everyone can receive from God in heaven. Now, let us just glance hurriedly at what these lessons teach us. The first lesson is this. You may be a very earnest, godly, devoted believer in whom the power of the flesh is still very strong. That is a very solemn truth. Peter, before he denied Christ, had cast out devils and had healed the sick. Yet the flesh had power and the flesh had room in him. Oh, beloved, we have to realize that it is because there is so much of that self-life in us that the power of God cannot work in us as mightily as he desires that it should work. Do you realize that the great God is longing to double his blessing, to give tenfold blessing through us? But there is something hindering him, and that something is a proof of nothing but the self-life. We talk about the pride of Peter, and the impetuosity of Peter, and the self-confidence of Peter. It is all rooted in that one word, self. Christ had said, deny self. And Peter had never understood and never obeyed. Every failing came out of that. Oh, what a solemn thought, and what an urgent plea for us to cry, Oh, God, do show this to us, so that none of us may be living the self-life. It has happened to people who have been Christians for years. It has happened to people who have perhaps occupied prominent positions. God found them out and taught them to find out about themselves. They became utterly ashamed and fell broken before God. Oh, the bitter shame and sorrow and pain and agony that came to them until at last they found that there was deliverance. Peter went out and wept bitterly. There may be many godly people in whom the power of the flesh still rules. 
And then my second lesson is, it is the work of our blessed Lord Jesus to disclose the power of self. How was it that Peter, the carnal Peter, self-willed Peter, Peter with the strong self-love, ever became a man of Pentecost and the writer of his epistles? It was because Christ placed him in charge and Christ watched over him and Christ taught and blessed him. The warnings that Christ had given him were part of the training. Last of all, there came that look of love. In his suffering, Christ did not forget him, but turned around and looked upon him, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. And the Christ who led Peter to Pentecost is waiting today to take charge of every heart that is willing to surrender itself to Him. Are there not some saying, Ah, that is the problem with me. It is always the self-life, self-comfort, self-consciousness, self-pleasing, and self-will. How am I to get rid of it? My answer is, It is Christ Jesus who can rid you of it. No one else but Christ Jesus can give deliverance from the power of self. And what does he ask you to do? He asks that you should humble yourself before him. Impossible with man, possible with God. And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Luke eighteen twenty seven. Christ had said to the rich young ruler, sell all that thou hast and come follow me. The young man went away sorrowful. Christ then turned to the disciples and said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. The disciples, we read, were greatly astonished and answered, Who then can be saved? And Christ gave this blessed answer, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Luke eighteen twenty-two through 27 The text contains two thoughts, that in the question of salvation and of following Christ by a holy life, it is impossible for man to do it. And then alongside that is the thought, what is impossible with man is possible with God. These two thoughts mark the two great lessons that man has to learn in the Christian life. It often takes a long time to learn the first lesson that in the Christian life man can do nothing, that salvation is impossible to man. And often a man learns that and yet he does not learn the second lesson. What has been impossible to him is possible with God. Blessed is the man who learns both lessons. The learning of them marks stages in the Christian's life. Man cannot. The one stage is when a man is trying to do his utmost and fails. When a man tries to do better and fails again. When a man tries much more and always fails. And yet, very often, he does not even then learn the lesson. With man, it is impossible to serve God and Christ. 
Peter spent three years in Christ's school, and he never learned it is impossible until he had denied his Lord, went out, and wept bitterly. Then he learned it. Just look for a moment at a man who is learning this lesson. At first he fights against it, then he submits to it, but reluctantly and in despair. At last he accepts it willingly and rejoices in it. At the beginning of the Christian life, the young convert has no conception of this truth. He has been converted. He has the joy of the Lord in his heart. He begins to run the race and fight the battle. He is sure he can conquer, for he is earnest and honest, and God will help him. Yet somehow, very soon, he fails where he did not expect it, and sin gets the better of him. He is disappointed, but he thinks, I was not cautious enough. I did not make my resolutions Strong enough, and again he vows, and again he prays, and yet he fails. He thinks, Am I not a redeemed man? Have I not the life of God within me? And he thinks again, Yes, and I have Christ to help me. I can live the holy life. At a later period, he comes to another state of mind. He begins to see such a life is impossible, but he does not accept it. There are multitudes of Christians who come to this point. I cannot. They then think that God never expected them to do what they cannot do. If you tell them that God does expect it, it is a mystery to them. A good many Christians are living a low life, a life of failure and sin, instead of rest and victory, because they began to say, I cannot, it is impossible. And yet they do not understand it fully. So, under the impression, I cannot, they give way to despair. They will do their best, but they never expect to get on very far. But God leads his children on to a third stage. A man comes to take, it is impossible in its full truth, and yet at the same time says, I must do it, and I will do it. It is impossible for man, and yet I must do it. The renewed will begins to exercise its whole power, and intense longing and prayer begins to cry to God, Lord, what is the meaning of this? How am I to be freed from the power of sin? It is the state of the regenerate man in Romans, chapter 7. There you will find the Christian man trying his very utmost to live a holy life, God's law has been revealed to him as reaching down into the very depths of the desires of the heart. The man can dare to say, I delight in the law of God after the inward man to will what is good is present with me. My heart loves the law of God and my will has chosen that law. Can a man like that fail with his heart full of delight in God's law and with his will determined to do what is right? Yes. 
That is what Romans chapter 7 teaches us. There is something more needed. Not only must I delight in the law of God after the inward man and will what God wills, but I need a divine omnipotence to work it in me. And that is what the Apostle Paul teaches in Philippians 2.13. It is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Note the contrast. In Romans chapter 7, the regenerate man says, To will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Romans 7:18. But in Philippians chapter 2, you have a man who has been led on farther. He is a man who understands that when God has worked the renewed will, God will give the power to accomplish what that will desires. Let us receive this as the first great lesson in the spiritual life. It is impossible for me, my God. Let there be an end of the flesh and all its powers, an end of self, and let it be my glory to be helpless. Praise God for the divine teaching that makes us helpless. When you thought of absolute surrender to God, were you not brought to an end of yourself? Did you not feel that you could see how you actually could live as a man absolutely surrendered to God every moment of the day, at your table, in your house, in your business, in the midst of trials and temptations? I pray you learn the lesson now. If you felt you could not do it, you are on the right road if you let yourselves be led. Accept that position and maintain it before God. My heart's desire and delight, O God, is absolute surrender, but I cannot perform it. It is impossible for me to live that life. It is beyond me. Fall down and learn that. When you are utterly helpless, God will come to work in you, not only to will, but also to do. God can. Now comes the second lesson. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. I said a little while ago that there is many a man who has learned the lesson. It is impossible with men. And then he gives up in helpless despair. He lives a wretched Christian life without joy or strength or victory. And why? Because he does not humble himself to learn that other lesson. With God, all things are possible. Your Christian life is to be a continuous proof that God works impossibilities. Your Christian life is to be a series of impossibilities made possible and actual by God's almighty power. That is what the Christian needs. He has an almighty God that he worships 
and he must learn to understand that he does not need a little of God's power, but he needs, with reverence be it said, the whole of God's omnipotence to keep him right and to live like a Christian. The whole of Christianity is a work of God's omnipotence. Look at the birth of Christ Jesus. That was a miracle of divine power, and it was said to Mary, With God nothing shall be impossible. Luke 1, 37. It was the omnipotence of God. Look at Christ resurrection. We are taught that it was according to the exceeding greatness of his mighty power that God raised Christ from the dead. Every tree must grow on the root from which it springs. An oak tree 300 years old grows all the time on the one root from which it had its beginning. Christianity had its beginning in the omnipotence of God. In every soul, Christianity must have its continuance in that omnipotence. All the possibilities of the higher Christian life have their origin in a new understanding of Christ's power to work all God's will in us. I want to call on you now to come and worship an almighty God. Have you learned to do it? Have you learned to deal so closely with an almighty God that you know omnipotence is working in you? In outward appearance, there is often little sign of it. The Apostle Paul said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my preaching was in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 1 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4. From the human side, there was feebleness. From the divine side, there was divine omnipotence. And that is true of every godly life. If we would only learn that lesson better and give a wholehearted, undivided surrender to it, we would learn what blessedness there is in dwelling every hour and every moment with an almighty God. Have you ever studied in the Bible the attribute of God's omnipotence? You know that it was God's omnipotence that created the world and created light out of darkness and created man. But have you studied God's omnipotence in the works of redemption? Look at Abraham. When God called him to be the father of that people out of which Christ was to be born, he said to him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Genesis 17.1 And God trained Abraham to trust him as the Omnipotent One. Whether it was his going out to a land that he did not know or his faith as a pilgrim midst the thousands of Canaanites, his faith said, This is my land. Whether it was his faith in waiting 25 years for a son in his old age against all hope, or whether it was the raising up of Isaac from the dead on Mount Moriah when he was going to sacrifice him, Abraham believed God. 
He was strong in faith, giving glory to God, because he accounted him who had promised able to perform. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L, 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.